Hello and welcome back to the QUB GP Society podcast. This series is entitled GP Spotlight, an inside look at general practice. We run this series of podcasts to give a behind-the-scenes outlook on life as a GP and the various career pathways it provides. Our guests will tell us about their journey into general practice, their particular specialist interests as well as other roles they may have held within the medical profession. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you stay up to date with all our upcoming releases. But now, on to today's episode. My name is Tim Neal and I am the Vice President of QUB GP Society. Hello everybody, um, thank you for joining our third episode of the GP Spotlight podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Jim McMullen. Um, we've got a fantastic room in the new CSEC in the NBC in Belfast. We're looking out onto the City Hospital this evening um, and I'm delighted that Dr McMullen has taken time out of his busy schedule to come and do an episode with us and to have a chat with us about his life in general practice. So, First thing to do will be to pass over and ask Dr. McMullen, could you introduce yourself and tell us briefly about some of your roles? Sure. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Tim. Uh, hi, my name's Jim McMullen. I'm a GP just outside Armagh. Um, I'm one of ten children from the Glens of Antrim. I have several roles. I'm what's called a portfolio GP. So I, I'm no longer a full-time uh, partnership. I still do regular clinical sessions, uh, but I spend quite a bit of my time now involved in undergraduate and postgraduate teaching. I work for NIMPTA. I'm one of the programme directors for the South Eastern Trust, looking after the ST1s, 2s and 3s who are uh, going into general practice. I work for Queen's University of Belfast. I'm one of the clinical teaching fellows and honorary lecturers from the Department of General Practice. And I am responsible for delivering clinical skills in CBL for years one and two, and GP and other skills in fourth and final year. And just for fun, one day a week, I work in the Southern Trust Chronic Pain Service, which I've done for over 20 years. So that's me. I'm the odd bit of golf. <laughs> and that's uh, that's fantastic. There's a lot of hats there, Doug McMullen, um, a lot of different roles. And I can see from what we've met today that you've enjoyed and had some good relaxation time in golf this afternoon, Absolutely. which is important very, very important, very important that we take that time out as well. Absolutely. So then, thinking right back mm. to the start, can you tell us a bit about how you decided to study medicine and then how you decided on the speciality of general practice? Thanks, Tim. Well, I think the first thing to declare is I'm not from a medical family or medical background. I was the, the first of my family to do medicine. Uh, not the last, as my brothers and sisters would be quick to tell you, and indeed my daughters. But I was the first. I was one of ten children, as I said, from the Glens of Antrim to go. At primary school, I had a very strong leaning to all things scientific. Um, and according to my mum, uh, God a mercy on her, that I always had a kind thing in me. Uh, quote unquote uh, at second, uh, secondary school or grammar school should I say that was encur- my scientific bias was encouraged and my careers teachers and my form teacher um, were very keen that I should consider medicine 
our school had a fairly decent track record for getting people into medical school and I was one of four that year to go on and do medicine from uh, Garden Tower. So yeah, that was medicine. Um, general practice could have went either way, Tim, to be brutally honest. Uh, back when I started in Queens in 1986. Yeah, uh, there was a very different setup than what there is now and certainly very different from Case 25. We had two sessions of general practice and I, I had a particularly negative experience in one of my general practice sessions that actually almost completely put me off being a GP. But I was rescued by... My second GP session, which was with a really cool young GP who took a great interest in us and on our teaching and turned me around from somebody who would never consider general practice to thinking, you know what, I want to be that guy. And I say, I, I hope I don't embarrass him by saying, but I know he's had such, such an effect, uh, a positive effect on so many over the years. But Dr. Jerry Lundy, from, uh, who is not, re- not that, that wrong retired, but I would still call him a friend and you know has inspired me over this last 30 years certainly his kindness and his gentleness to his patients has always rang true so he turned me back to the rule of general practice it's amazing how some of those role models stay with you as a as a junior doctor as a younger person as a as a student and I'm sure that's true of many people for yourself as well Dr McMullen but Looking forward then, what has your experience of general practice been like? How have you seen the role of GP change sort of from when you started up until now? Hugely, I suppose, you know. When I look back at what general practice was 25, 30 years ago and where it is now, um, I suppose we could focus on the negatives and the decades of underfunding and the lack of staff and the poor premises throughout that, that, that we are forced to, to work in. But we will not linger on the negatives because there are so many positives about the job. Uh, general practice was the number one career to go into whenever I was in. There was a, it was grossly oversubscribed. We had to study and work and rehearse and practice for interviews to get on to the GP uh, rotations after we'd finished our uh JHO and SHO as they were now, or F1 and F2 in Daisy Hill Hospital. There was huge clamour for the GP places. The, the autonomy of being a, your own boss and deciding your own working hours, picking your own staff was just a, a very attractive to a lot of us. Um, I remember fund holding all sorts of exciting different things coming in and coming out as different governments came and went. And, and now, now we have uh, federations and goodness knows what the future will bring after that the, the the absolute crux of it all is no matter what happens in general practice patients will still want to see their doctors or members of their doctor staff patients will still want to get uh, will still get sick they'll still need our help and they'll still expect us to give us the give of our absolute best and, and being with our compassion our professionalism and our empathy so I Whilst it has changed a lot, certainly treatments and anti-TNF and all these exciting things and how you treat an MI, it's changed so completely not really. There's a, there's a lot of stuff stayed the same as well, Tim. And before we started recording, we were sort of chatting about that sort of making the patient your first concern and, and it's amazing that that sort of does stay constant the whole way through and Absolutely. hopefully long into the future as well. 
So we chatted a little bit about this, but what other jobs and roles have you worked in and have they involved doing any further postgraduate training or other qualifications? Not long after I took up partnership uh, with, uh, I was offered a couple of partnerships, but took up with Dr. Fitz Gillespie and his wife, who were inspirational characters. Um, they encouraged me uh, on my day off to explore other things. They were big into their horses and horse riding, and he was a national hunt trainer and breeder and had so many other things to be doing, as well as look after his patients. He encouraged us all to have a look and see what else. And there was a rather visionary anaesthetist in Craig Avenue Hospital who was running the pain service and realised that chronic pain management was now turning away from injecting everybody to a more holistic biopsychosocial approach, uh, requiring an assessment and requiring a lot of CBT psychology and supportive. And he, rightly or wrongly, felt that primary care cares would be better to get delivering that than consult anaesthetists. So he took us on board and uh, myself and one of my colleagues did a distance learning module through the University of Cardiff in chronic pain to get the, the extra qualifications and well if you're going to set yourself up as a GP as an extended role I think we all like to have a wee bit of paper to say that we're we can actually do it so went from the Southern Trust then to um, the Musgrave Park to the Regional Pain Service where I was looked after uh, mentored and taught by excellent Dr. Palma Bell and Dr. Jason Brooks who really inspired me to continue and down that road and to get better at looking after patients with this chronic long-term condition. So I still do that, and I still enjoy that heartily. And I think it stands me in good stead when I'm looking after my chronic pain patients in primary care as well. Other roles, um, I dabbled my toes into the, 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 the murky waters of teaching 22 years ago. I know that exactly because my... My youngest daughter, or my oldest daughter, was eight, mo- eight weeks old whenever we took our first medical student. Um, that medical student is now a, a, a very senior, fantastic consultant in, in A&E in the Belfast Trust and went on to great things. And every time I see him on TV or hear him on the radio, or indeed see him and his kids in Armagh tootling about the place down with his in-laws, I smile and think to myself, well, maybe, maybe I had a... A small amount to play in that, in, in, in forming the people like that there. And indeed, I ended up, I lasted my wife at his wedding, and I've met him on umpteen occasions before, Tim. So that was 22 years ago. Uh, we had our first first-year medical student. About four or five years after that, I rang Queen's and spoke to some of the guys up here and said, if you ever needed a wee bit of a hand. Because really and truly, I wanted to see what happened at the exam times and see what's going on. Because you use medical students are very pragmatic creatures and would often ask me as a GP, do you think think could this come up in the exam? And you're thinking, I'm not not too sure. So rang the guys, went up, gave them a set and helped them out. And here I am, 15 years later, (laughs) stuck in the place, can't get away. Once you come in, they'll just don't don't let you out, Tim. But maybe that's a bad thing either. I have to say, I heartily enjoy it. Um, I really enjoy the C-sec sessions with the first years and second years, and I really, really enjoy the fourth year and final year sessions as well. I find them very interactive and very... It's amazing what really hard questions lots and lots of really intelligent people can ask you in a relatively short period of time. It keeps you on your game and it keeps you sharp. So I really do enjoy that. And the uh, three years ago, I 
uh, was successful in getting one of the program directorship posts through NIMPTA, which I just saw as a natural extension of my undergraduate teaching, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I have, well, I don't overly enjoy the Zoom. I'm a, I'm a face-to-face guy, as you, as you probably have gathered, but it is what it is. Hopefully there'll be times we'll get back to face-to-face again in the future. So that's kind of my other rules and how I've sort of st- stumbled into them. And we confirm in that little bit that uh, Dr. McMullen has had an influence on other people, and people do remember. People do remember. I can assure. I, I can assure you. Um, but yeah, that's fantastic to just hear all those other different things you've got involved with, and how GP fits in with them, and how they fit in to also enhance your GP. And it's amazing as well that it was your GP training that opened the door to those roles and, and widened the access to those roles. So then we we sort of alluded to this, but in terms of specifically within Queen's, within medical education, who are you and, and what is that role like and what does it involve on a weekly basis for you? Well, there's the bits that everybody sees, the bits where we're standing showing you how to do, take blood, to how to do a neurological examination, how to do a bit of fundoscopy, how to take a history. That's the, you know, the, the very obvious bits, but there's the behind the scenes bit that has to be done as well the how do you set up an exam for 300 students how do you get them all through socially distanced wearing PPE what exams are, or what OSCE stations are we going to use did we use those last year did we not use those last year are we going to tweak them or are we going to change them the curriculum's new there's a C25 curriculum coming through that all has to be ruled out as well through each team case based learning yeah, all has to be facilitated, and the, these cases don't write themselves. Having written one of them, I can assure you, it is not, and it's not something you do of a, of over a weekend. It is a major piece of work that has to be done because it all has to be, you know, evidence based. It's not something you can write in the back of a, a cigarette box and sort of uh, throw out. It has to be properly researched and of, of course referenced as well. So yeah, lots and lots of things to do that there, and then in the sort of the uh, older, the fourth years and final years, there's the GP attachments, there's the G, the uh, assessment days, there's OSCEs and FOSCEs, there's the IMU uh, uh, students, there's returning intercalators that all have to be reintegrated back into thinking clinically rather than researchally, which can, again, with my own daughter, uh, ha- can be a difficult thing to do. Uh, all these things that, do you just walk in and see happened? All has to be done behind the scenes and organised by a fabulous team of people who are so dedicated to looking after the, the students. You know, it's actually mind blowing how dedicated the staff here here are. And, and I have to say, have never made me anything more than welcome, and have always helped guide me from the word go. Tim, I I I would heartily commend know anybody to consider teaching at Queen's. It's fantastic and I think that support is reflected in what we in the GP Society also receive. Um, the, the team of support in CSEC, the team of support in Team GP at Queen's and the guidance that we get from, from all of you folks is, is just reflected straight back down on us as students so that is absolutely brilliant to hear. We move on then and just sort of look to the future, set our eyes forward and, and think at the minute as we stand in the crisis that we're in and look forward 
where do you see the future of general practice within the next couple of years and then maybe further afield from that? What's changing and what will still be the same? What will be the same is people will still want to see their GPs. Tim, I strongly and firmly believe that uh, general practice and primary care teams are the, the bedrock of, of the NHS. We know that our, our colleagues in secondary care, particularly in a are already swamped. Um, there is no slack in the system. The bottom line is there's been decades of underfunding and under-resourcing of the NHS. The NHS was walking into a crisis before the pandemic was ever here. Waiting lists were on an unacceptably high level. Patient demand for access for services with fewer doctors, fewer nurses, fewer uh, uh, staff at all levels. We were promised... uh, was it seven or eight years ago, an extra 5,000 GPs. There's 1,500 fewer than there were then. It's very difficult to see where all these extra GPs are going to come overnight, particularly when I know some uh, of our European colleagues have went back home uh, after Brexit. Short term, there will have to be massive investment in infrastructure. There will have to in training, which is already happening, I think. We're going to have to try and keep are clever graduates here in this country. There are a lot of more attractive sounding countries financially and perhaps meteorologically than where we are at present. Uh, we have to make it so that our young people want to stay here and want to contribute and want to work. But we have to make, therefore, the place that they're going to work more attractive and appealing. And we're going to have to make the conditions better. We're going to have to sort of in my humble opinion, we're going to have to say that it's not safe for a GP to see 50 or 60 people in, in one day. Uh, if you do the maths, and I'm using those numbers because I know they're real numbers from both myself and some of my colleagues, uh, that level of consultations, if there's if you're doing that every day, unfortunately, you cannot give that same level of concentration because you're absolutely wrecked and you probably haven't had a very nice meal or a very good meal, if any meal, and you haven't had a break and you probably haven't been to the toilet and it's all very stressful and very st- and everybody feels that. So we're going to have to have, find out a way of making demand less. Uh, we cannot create another 5,000 GPs overnight. Uh, I, I feel a fair amount of sadness for... Know, small single-handed or dual-handed rural practices because it's going to become increasingly difficult to attract locums and therefore the new, the, the new partners to those practices. So short-term, I, I think it might get a little bit worse before it gets better, but long-term, I think the governments will have to appreciate that without G, general practice and primary care, there is no NHS, so they will have to look after it. And it was my great hope... Well, Often general practice goes in cycles. You know, there's good times, bad times, good times, bad times. I'm hoping there'll be a good time after this bad time where people will actually appreciate the fantastic care that our primary care teams give. And as a society that hopefully sort of tries to promote that and promote that GP as a career and as the diverse options that are available and as the autonomy that's available... You know, we all we hope for the same things and kind of knock on the door for the same things and we'll continue to knock on the door for the same things. So then to maybe finish on a bit of a lighter and brighter note, let's let's ask Dr. McMullen for one piece of advice. 
you have worked with a lot of different students, I'm sure, through in your practice, hosting them, through Queens, teaching them, training them, demonstrating to them. What one piece of advice would you give to medical students, the doctors of the future, to make their practice better? Wow, that's a toughie. Okay, well, I'll keep it straightforward and I'll keep it fairly simple, I think. Patients know who cares. Patients understand that we are not perfect beings and that we are, you know, we have emotions. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I've been very fortunate. I've never seen the inside of a, a courthouse and touch wood. I, I never will. I, I, I don't think uh, I'm the am I the best doctor in the world? Absolutely not. But I think if you're kind, gentle, underlined and empathetic to your patients, they really do appreciate that. And they, of, of all things, appreciate you listening to them. So showing the, that you care and showing that you're listening to them, I think will make you a better doctor. The day you start to rush your patients and you no longer feel that you, the service and, and the care you're providing is up to what you would want it to be, is at the stage you need to take a wee step back and have a look at yourself. Is this, you know, you're probably getting to the stage where you're, you need a little bit of a break. So, yeah, that would be my advice. Listen and care and be kind and treat every patient as if it was a member of your family. You'll not go too far wrong. And I suppose what, what I would say is your MRCGP, getting that is not the, the end of your career. It's the start of your career and it opens up so many doors and so many avenues and so many other professions that we're going to hear about tonight. Yes, and as we record this um, podcast, I should say, we're just in advance of our face-to-face GP spotlight in the hot seat session. So Dr. McMullen and I are going to be uh, running, hopefully not too quickly, over there um, afterwards. Um, but Dr. McMullen, I have nothing to add with that piece of advice. There's absolutely nothing else that can be said. It's so simple. It's so close to heart. And, and hopefully it's something that students right through Queen's, right through their placements in general practice in first and second year for family attachment, and then in, in fourth and fifth year out in the practices, see in some of the members of staff that, that they interact with. Dr. McMullen, thank you so much for taking time to to record an episode with us. We really appreciate it. Um, And we will leave it there for today. So thank you very, very much. We hope you have enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, remember to check out our other series, Common Conditions in General Practice, for bite-sized revision episodes. If you have any ideas, suggestions or feedback, don't be afraid to get in touch with us at gp-soc at qub.ac.uk. Our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts are regularly updated with all the essential information from our society, including new podcast episodes, upcoming events and much more. That's all for today, so thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.